This is the Street Smart Mental Health Podcast, coming to you, as always, from the Lou Fuse Automotive Group Studio. My name is Michael Wellington, and unfortunately today, my partner in crime, Brandon McNamee, will not be with us. We want to send love and condolences to he and his family. He lost his mom about 10 days ago or so, and Brandon, we want you to know that we're thinking of you, and we're looking forward to having you back in studio just as soon as you're ready. But today, we've got a very interesting guest, somebody who has a background in professional golf, someone who has battled mental health issues, someone who's very open and talking about those mental health issues. And those are the things we like to cover here on Street Smart. Charlie Belgian, how are you doing today, my man? I am absolutely wonderful. I'm happy to be on your guys' show, share my story, and hopefully change some lives along the way. That's the whole point of what we're doing, and, and that's why we started our podcast, and to learn that this is something that you're doing, you know, we're just as excited to have you as well. So, Charlie, you are a PGA Tour champion, you're a USGA champion, and we're going to get into all those details about your golf history. Tell me, how did you get involved in golf? Like, what, what started you in the game? I was probably like six or seven years old, and my parents used to ship me to Houston, Texas for the summers to spend time with my grandparents. My grandpa owned a big warehouse and supplied all the movie theaters with candies and that. And then as soon as he was done, he played golf. He was a scratch golfer his whole life. So he's the one that taught me the game and in the middle of the summer humidity in Houston, Texas. So it was brutal, but it was great at the same time. Yeah, what a good place to learn the game. I mean, the history of the game in Houston is incredible. Jackie Burke comes to mind, and the PGA Tour has been there for many years. And looking at your history, you know, you won the 2002 U.S. Junior at Atlanta Athletic Club. I did a little homework on this tournament. You won that championship using only 12 clubs. Is that true? That is correct. I had a little bit more of a temper back then, and I broke a couple clubs and didn't have the money to fix them, so I just said heck with it and, and cruised over to Atlanta Athletic Club and happened to somehow come out a winner. You grew up in, what, like the Phoenix area? Is that, is that right? Yeah, just east, Mesa, Arizona, like 20 minutes east of the Phoenix airport. Okay, so a little bit different growing up, spending time playing golf in that area and then coming across the country to play the Atlanta Athletic Club. But I guess with your background, you know, playing as a youngster in Houston, that probably helped. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you beat the current British Open champion in that U.S. Junior, Brian Harmon? I did. Yes, I beat him and he was the hometown boy and he had a couple hundred people out there rooting for him and against me. And shoot, I think we went to about 19, 20, 21 holes or something like that. And I think I birdied the last couple on him to force it to a playoff. And, and we had a, a great battle and Brian Harmon is a, a great guy and just a, a dude's dude, as I like to call him. And I couldn't have been happier to see him win the British Open. Yeah, you know, I, I've got some ties to Savannah where he's from, and it was cool to see him win and definitely excited for his victory. Now, you win the U.S. Junior at 18 years old. Before you entered the Junior, did you know where you were going to go to college? Had it been, was it, was it set in stone? Or how, did that, that certainly probably gave you carte blanche to pick where you wanted to go, right? It gave me a choice to go wherever I wanted. Before I went to the U.S. Junior, no, I was going to go to Mesa Community College. My, my folks didn't have any money to send me anywhere. I wasn't able to travel and play the AJGA circuit due to financial circumstances, so I just dominated the Arizona Junior golf scene, but that wasn't really enough to get me a scholarship anywhere. 
And then I happened to go to Junior World and I finished about 15th, which drew a little attention to me. And then I went over to the U.S. Junior and ended up winning the U.S. Junior and, and literally had my pick of wherever I wanted to go. And how did you decide on the University of New Mexico of all places? Originally, I always wanted to be a Florida Gator growing up or a Arizona Wildcat. But once I realized it was a four or five hour plane ride to Florida versus four or five hour car ride to the University of New Mexico, that took out the University of Florida and Coach LaRose down at U of A, he came over to the house for a recruiting trip and he kept calling me his hush puppy. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to let some guy that's a stranger walk into my house and call me his hush puppy. So I threw that out the door. Glenn Milliken, the University of New Mexico at the time, actually just transferred. Now he's the coach of Missouri. He'll be first year at the SEC, so I couldn't be happier for him. But they had an incredible facility there, the UNM Championship course, incredible practice facilities with our own holes. Only the team was down there. And then what I really liked was that the town supported the college because those were the only sports they had. And that was really something pretty neat to me. And then they showed me a wonderful time on my recruiting trip. And I decided right then and there that that's where I was going to go, be a Lobo. So you go there, you win three times in college, you become an All-American, you finish there in 07, yep. and then you spend, what, four or five years playing the mini tours? I guess at that time, the Gateway Tour was pretty strong out in the Phoenix area. You played out there kind of for what? Four or five years? Four years, yeah. We played the Gateway Tour. It was great at the time. It was twenty-five to $35,000 for the winner. Three rounds of golf and carts with your buddies, barbecues, beers afterwards. It was, I wish it would come back because it was the greatest time ever. And then each year I'd walk through first stage and I'd get to second stage of Q school and I'd lose my game. And I, I think four years in a row, I left after 36 holes because I was so far out of it that I just, I wasn't going to waste my time. And I, I took off. And then on the fifth year, I walked all the way through, went first stage, second stage, and then finished, I think, 12th or 13th Palm Springs to get my tour card. Beautiful. So yeah, I got here 2012. You, you finally get your tour card. Now, let me ask you this, Charlie, when you're cutting your teeth as a college player, you're playing the mini tours, you're, you're improving, you're getting better. Did you run into any mental health issues during that, you know, window of time? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, in college, my junior year, my junior year, I actually, we were on the road down at the University of Arizona's golf tournament and I took a bunch of pills, man, and, and tried to shut her down then with some a whole bunch of painkillers and, and they took me out of there and they took me to a psychiatrist and that's kind of when I first started my journey down the mental health road. Did they diagnose you with anything specific? Just the typical, you answer 500 bubble questions and then they, they say, here's what you got. They give you some medicine and send you on your way. I mean, it was just depression, just like anybody else. Nothing real specific, but you know, that didn't stop me. I just started taking the medicine and kept running the way I was running. Didn't really change anything outside of that. No, I mean, I know the feeling. I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder right out of college and same kind of thing, you know, went in, doctor said, you have this, you got to take this and, you know, started taking the pills and whatnot. So you get your tour card, you go through the whole 2012 season, you're towards, I guess it's the last event of the year and it's the Children's Miracle Network Hospital Classic. What most people know is the, the Walt Disney Tournament. Yep. And I, this, this story, if you know golf, you kind of know your story, but a lot of our people that listen to our program aren't totally golf centric. So tell our listeners what it was like. You're in a situation and correct me if I'm wrong with 
with any of this, but you're in a situation where it's the last term of the year. You have to finish like, I think it was like third or better to That's keep correct. your tour card, right? And you're in the hunt from the first day. I mean, walk us through that that four days of competition because I know it was wild. It was wild. So I show up to Disney. I know what I've got to do. I'm obviously setting a bar that high to finish third or better to keep your card is, is extremely difficult. But I just had my son like six weeks prior and then now I'm sitting here staring at losing my job. I go out the first round. I play a wonderful round of golf. I shoot three or four under, very easy on the harder course. Go about my day, go back to my hotel room. I was a big drinker, man. Got, got smashed like I did all six other nights of the week. Show up on Friday and I'm like, all right, let's just put a solid round together and keep this thing moving forward for the weekend. Well, at the time I was smoking cigarettes and I lit up a cigarette and I walk into the practice range and I look at my caddy, Rick Adcox handlebar at the time. And I said, man, I'm not feeling well. So I said, I can't withdraw. We got to fight through this. So he calls over some medical people and they take my blood pressure and my blood pressure is real high. And they say, you know, it's hot out. It might not be the best, best thing to go play. Well, that wasn't an option. I had to keep my tour card. So I hit about 10 balls and, and I'm feeling this tightness in my chest and I'm, I'm really I've never felt anything like this before. So I go to the first hole and I eagle the first hole and then I birdie the second hole and I birdie the third hole. And I think I shoot about 30 or 31 on the front nine. Meanwhile, I literally am walking down the fairway and just feeling like at any second I could fall over and die. And I had never experienced any anxiety before. So I, I, I didn't know that it was anxiety. I couldn't relate. I really honestly felt like I was going to have a heart attack. So we make the turn. I call the rules official over. I said, hey, I need some paramedics. I got to have them check me out. And paramedics show up on about number 10 green or 11. Meanwhile, I birdie 10 and I birdie 11. And they said, man, your heart, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think my blood pressure was around 200. My heartbeat was cranking like 120 or 30. And for somebody that's just walking down the fairway, that uh, that was a little high. And they said, you know, I we think we should take you in, man. You need to go get checked out. This isn't normal. And I said, hey, I've, I've got to fight through this. So I light up another cigarette. I continue about my way. And at this point now, I'm literally laying down in the middle of the fairways as I believe I was playing with Edward Lohr and somebody else. Oh, it was the amateur deal. So I had a couple of amateurs and I'm laying down in the fairways because I think I'm going to die, but I've got to keep going and got to keep going. I got to keep, I got to finish this round. I need to make the money. I got to try to keep my job. And I fight through the back nine and I'm sweating and my agents following me at this time. And now there's, you know, camera crews showing up. So now the anxiety is even mounting more. And like I said, I didn't know that it was anxiety. So now I, I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to have a massive heart attack right here. And this is how I'm going to go out. I finish the round and as soon as I, I make this incredible up and down on number 18 and as soon as I make the putt, I just I just start crying and I'm like, it's over. I did it. I can now get some help. I can get some I can get some treatment. Somebody can take care of me and I can come back tomorrow. So I'll, I'll never forget. I walk into the scoring tent. Jason Kokrak and Tommy Ganey are sitting there and they're like, way to go, way to go. And then they realize that I'm just crying and I. I sit there and I sign my scorecard and the next thing I know, an ambulance backs up to the scoring tent and they unload a stretcher and they say, hey, we're taking you to the hospital. And I said, I'm happy to go. I'm like, if, if you guys are going to make me feel better, I'm happy to go. So lo and behold, I signed for like a 63 or a 64 <laughs> and uh, they, they put me on a stretcher. I'm leading the golf tournament and they take me over to, I believe it was Arnold Palmer's hospital there in Orlando. And my agent's with me and I'm, I'm sitting there watching the golf channel and not, 
not believing that this is real, that I, I just completed this incredible task and posted this great score, and I'm leading the PGA Tour as a rookie. Meanwhile, I'm strapped to a hospital bed with my golf shoes on still at this time, and you know every wire that there could be hooked up to you. And I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm going to live through the night. And, you know, so all the tests came back, all, everything, everything was absolutely perfect. And that's when they said, hey, do you know what anxiety is? And I said, no. And so I said, hey, we're going to give you some of these pills and, you know, they'll, they'll help ease everything. And so that's when I was introduced to Xanax and I go back out the next morning and I think I get out of the hospital at about. 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, my agent takes me to the hotel. He says, let's try to get a couple hours of sleep. Well, that didn't happen. Meanwhile, I've got my whole family and my kid flying in from Phoenix because they want to obviously be there to support me for the golf, but more importantly, to make sure that I'm safe. And so they show up to the, the hotel. We all ride together to the golf course. And then I get out of the car in the parking lot and cameras in my face. I've never experienced anything. And all of a sudden I started feeling those feelings coming back and I could feel the tingling in my hands. So that's when I'm like, well, I got to try one of these, you know, these Xanax out and took one and it, it helped calm me down a little bit. But, you know, for the for the next two days, it was it was the nerves that I had, was feeling, not the anxiety. I was able to get through those two days somehow and win my first tournament. But I think that one of the big reasons I was able to win the first tournament and you know, maybe not feel all the nerves in that is because I was more worried about just making it through the 18 holes, you know, one step in front of the other, the shots weren't that important, but I just kept producing and making putts. And it was just, it was an extraordinary week. And when it was over, I couldn't believe that I was a champion. And then I couldn't believe the story that I had. And the next thing I knew, every single news agencies reaching out, solid rock and all these different ones want me to do interviews. And Literally, just like they always say, you know, one week can change your life. And that was my story. And off to the races we went. You know, it's so interesting to hear the details of that story, because I would think that you could have experienced some of this before at Q School. And maybe you did, because I think we both agree that Q School, there's no pressure cooker like Q School. But then for this particular tournament, you, this was kind of like Q School, because if you didn't finish well, you were going to lose your card. That's correct. So... Here's the thing that I, in th doing the research on you and, and finding out some more details, here's the part of your story that's really interesting to me. So you win the Disney tournament yeah. with this, with these unbelievable circumstances. You're basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're basically having a panic attack during the entire four competitive rounds, more or less. You know what they say, you know, beware the injured golfer. I mean, physically, maybe you weren't injured, but your anxiety was ratcheted up. And, and it's crazy because you were able to perform at such a high level, even though, you know, your anxiety was, was really bugging you. And so now that you've won, then you've got the two-year exemption now. Mm -hmm. So now you've got the money coming in with the sponsors, you've got the prize money coming in, you have more opportunities to play, you got better tee times. So you've got the anxiety that's a factor. You mentioned the alcohol was a factor. Pills had been something that was involved. What were those next two years from the end of 2012 all the way through like, I guess, 2014 or 15, like as far as your lifestyle and what were you doing? Were you, did you have any sort of a semblance of hey, I need to take care of myself? Or was it like, you know what? I just won. I'm going to rip it because this is how I did it to get here. And this is what I'm going to keep doing. You know, unfortunately, I, I, I said, you know what? I just did it, man. And I went and bought a rig 
a 45 foot Newmar, and I said, you know what? I'm going to travel the country in the rig. Yes. Oh, I love. I love that you did this. I love that you did this. And I I set sail on the West Coast. I never driven a rig, never been inside one. I said. This is how I'm going to do it. But it was really the downfall because now I had my rig. I had all my own stuff and it was a party, to be honest. I went out. I met a lot of people. We had a lot of barbecues at the rig, you know, parking with Daly and Jason Day and Robert Garrigus and Jimmy Walker and all these guys. We, We really formed a nice bond. But at the same time, I had just gone through a divorce, so I was really running hard. I had a a caddy, Ricky Romano, who actually just started with Ricky Fowler about a year ago. Oh, I know him and I love him. Absolute tear and now to the Ryder Cup. And I couldn't be happier for Ricky. He's earned a lot of respect out there. He's done things the right way, in my opinion. But I told him, look, man, you got to take care of me. So when we would finish a round of golf and on to the next week, he would drive the evening so I could cocktail down the road. He liked to sleep in. So I'd get up early, three, four, five in the morning, start to drive the rig to the next spot. But it was kind of a downfall, man, because I was able to invite all my friends or people that I met over there. And it was just, uh, to be honest with you, it was a crazy booze party for the next two years. And as much fun as I was having, I, I think that I kept up in the booze and, and that kind of stuff more and more because the anxiety became so much greater. And it seemed that the only thing that would take away the anxiety was the booze. And then I noticed, you know, hole number two or three, I was already thinking about having a drink and getting back to the rig. Wow. It was just a vicious, gross cycle. And, you know, I was the guy, unfortunately, that if nine holes didn't go well or 18 holes didn't go well, I didn't want to waste my time or my caddy's time. So I would just withdraw from the tournament and then we would turn it up for three days in whatever town we were in before we headed to the next one. And boy, when I look back, I just did things so backwards. But at the time when you're all wrapped in it, I thought I was just thought I was on top of the world. You know, I was here. I was I was a 27 year old kid had the world, had a rig, was parking with Daly and all these guys. It was like a dream come true. And instead of trying to do my best with the opportunity, unfortunately, partying was a much more of an importance to me. And it just led me down a really nasty road. However, I wouldn't, people always ask me, do you you regret it? Or would you change it if you could? And I say, absolutely not. I, I, I got to experience things that you almost couldn't even fathom sometimes, but it also made me the man that I am now today after going through that, beating that, and coming out on top. We have covered so much here. Let's take a quick break and come right back. Looking for a dealership who cares about our community? Look to Lou. Lou Fuse gives back to local businesses and charities. Looking for a name that supports youth sports? Look to Lou for Fuse Athletic. And we're the official automotive sponsor of St. Louis City SC. Looking for a huge vehicle inventory? Look to Lou with 17 brands at 13 locations. For the very best car buying experience, you've got to look to Lou Fuse. The Street Smart Mental Health Podcast is powered by Birdies for Bipolar. Birdies for Bipolar aids veterans and civilians living with mental illness by using golf as recreational therapy. For more information, check out birdiesforbipolar.org. That's birdies, the number four, bipolar.org. Welcome back to Street Smart. Let's dig back in. 
So you mentioned all these things that you were into, and I just want to give our audience a little context. So was this a situation where were you drinking pretty much every night, like even nights before you'd have competition, or was it just like if you'd miss a cut, you guys would get after it, or was it just pretty much every day? It was every day, and to kind of put it into perspective of how bad it got, I was playing Sunday at Riv, at Riviera there in L.A. when I lost in the playoff to Johnny Merrick. And on Saturday night, parked outside of the rig, I was in Malibu overlooking the water. I mean, it was a 25-beer kind of night, you know, with, <laughs> with, teeing off, with teeing off on Sunday in the leader group on the PGA Tour. But that didn't matter to me because what mattered to me was catching that buzz and feeling good and making the anxiety go away. So that was all I knew, unfortunately. That was how I coped and, and, and what I did in order to make the next day manageable and possible and tried to take Mondays off, but it got to the point where I really couldn't even take a day off. If you had to pinpoint, you know, your worst habit during those days, was it the alcohol? No question. Yeah. I mean, I was smoking pot every day too. And then here's the crazy thing is I'm, 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 I've worked so hard my entire life to be on the PGA tour and I get there and I win and I'm one of the best players in the world. And my two main focuses were alcohol and drinking enough water so in case I got drug tested on Thursday or Friday, I would pass my drug test. So instead of focusing on my game and, and being great and, and taking all the advantages that I had from the club companies and, and just I, I, I spent all my time worrying about the next time to catch the buzz or how I was going to beat a drug test or it was just pathetic and embarrassing when I think about it. But that's that, that was the life I lived. I didn't know any different. And I started drinking probably at about 15 years old, pretty heavy. And that was all I knew, man, was I, I, I got really good at drinking. I got even better at playing golf. And then, as you know, opportunity starts to present themselves. And you're like, well, how can I say no? And just one thing snowballs into another. And before you know it, it was it was out of control and the anxiety. That's what led me to take a, a leave from the tour in 2015, I think, for mental health is I was actually in Houston of all places, and I went to I went to turn the handle on the door of the hotel room to to head out to Redstone. There, I physically couldn't turn the door handle. The anxiety was so bad, and I I called my caddy Ricky and said, "Hey, buddy, here's what what's going on." He rushed over, and he said, "I think we need to take a break." And and that's that was kind of that was kind of the start of it all. I can totally relate, man. You know, I'm from St. Louis, and as you know, St. Louis is the home of Budweiser. So. It, drinking was so celebrated when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. I think I started drinking when I was 14. And so I, I, I totally understand, like, when you get started early, you know, once you're 10 years in, as you probably were right about almost to the time where you won the, yeah. the Disney, like, you're, you're a seasoned veteran. Like, you know, having 12 or 14 beers in a night is nothing, I'm sure, at that point for you. You were... You were I mean, it's um, 14 was just kind of getting warmed up. Ex exactly. <laughs> and and I got to tell you, while I'm thinking about it, I, I absolutely love Ricky Romano. And I'm going to tell you how I know him. So last summer, I caddied uh, probably seven PJ Tour events for Chris Nagel. And Chris is very good friends with Nate Lashley. And Ricky at the time was okay. was caddying for Nate. And we, we played just about every practice round with him. And I was so happy probably as you are, that he got the job with Ricky Fowler and, and he's just one of the best dudes you'll ever meet. So that had to be really cool that you got to work with him. And, and it sounds like, you know, he was probably even a bigger help off the golf course than he was on. Yes, absolutely. And quick backstory. So Ricky and I, we knew each other in college. 
came to the Gateway Tour. Everything was great. And then he kind of started hanging with some other guys. And so our, our paths kind of went opposite ways for a couple years. And as a, at, the, at that time, I was going through caddies because my caddy at the time got injured. And I hadn't talked to Ricky in about two years. And I'm driving the rig from Pebble Beach down to Riviera. And I said, I can't keep switching caddies every week. And so I said, who can I call? And Ricky Romano probably hadn't talked to him for two years. I called him up and he said, Charlie, what's going on, man? So great to hear from you. He goes, you want to come over and watch the game tonight? And I said, actually, no. I said, can you get in your car and be in LA at six in the morning tomorrow? And I need you to caddy for me. And there was this long silence. And the guy gets in the car, comes over. We play a practice round with Ernie Els, and he was just in total shell shock. You know, he was sitting <laughs> on the couch to now he's caddying on the tour. And, um, you know, that was just, he, he took such good care of me and he did such a wonderful job. And I'm just so happy to see his career, but just out of the blue, he never had any intentions of caddying. And uh, I thought of him and he was always one of the best putters I'd ever seen. And that's what I needed. So I called him and, and that's, that's how him and I hooked back up. And that's how he started on the PGA tour. And he's just so, done so well for himself. I'm so happy for him. Yeah, man, you hit the nail right in the, on the head. He's just, he's one of those dudes that like, he's always happy. He's always always positive. He's always smiling and he's just cool. Yeah. You know, I, I just really enjoyed all the rounds we got to walk around the golf course with him. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, Charlie, what was it like having John Daly as your RV neighbor when you were traveling oh, the tour? Boy. It was, there was nothing better. I mean, you were always in for a good laugh, a good evening, a good meal, but more importantly, you just never knew who was going to show up at the rigs and, and what was going to what was going to transpire that evening. But at the same time, you know, him being older and being through it, he kind of took me under his wing, helped show me the ropes and him and I had booze and cigarettes in common. So we were great pals. Yeah, man, I get a chance to see him quite a bit on the champions tour and he's so funny. I don't think people know really how funny he is. I, I just get a big kick at him. So, so let's let's shift gears a little bit, Charlie. Because when we have people on our podcast, we always want to talk about the things that they're doing nowadays after they've been through some of these struggles that you've mentioned. Are you alcohol free? Are you smoking cigarettes these days? No, nope, I quit smoking cigarettes about six years, just past six years ago. I'm hitting balls next to Tom Watson at the Greenbrier, and he's giving me hell for smoking cigarettes. So I turned to Ricky and I said, "You know what, Rick?" And I had this cough. I said, I'm never going to smoke a cigarette again. And he said, yeah, right. I've never had one. And I just passed 34 months of sobriety. Awesome. Um, yeah. So October 26 will be three years for me. How that kind of happened. I'm, I'm playing in the Sedona Open, getting smashed again before every round. And I hit 18 greens in the final round. And I had 13 three putts because of oh, dear. my hands. And I was shaking so bad. And I I went home to my wife and I said, I'm never drinking again. And of course, everybody laughed. And, you know, I had tried to cut down and tried to do this and that. And it just, it, it doesn't work. I'm either all in or all out. But I'm happy to say I'm, I'm 70 pounds lighter and I'm almost three years sober. So life is dramatically changed. It's been an extremely humbling experience. You know, I've, I've lost many people that I thought were friends. But now that the booze is out the door, we don't have anything in common, so mm -hmm. it's, it's been a very humbling three years, but boy, the relationships that I have have never been stronger. The relationship with my son is just truly remarkable, and I just couldn't be more thankful. No, man, it, it sounds like to me that you've created a new awareness for yourself. You know, the thing that I get after listening to you talk is, you know, you, you've, you've held yourself accountable. You know that, you know, when you were out on that five-year, six-year stretch on the tour, 
people could say you could have done it different, but that was the way it was when you were doing it, but you've learned and now you're not even 40 years old yet, right? Coming up on 38. Okay. So, so what kind of things would you share with our audience that maybe you do? And I'll give you some examples here in a second to, to take care of that anxiety or to take care of the sobriety. I mean, are you a meditator? Do you journal? Are you doing exercise? Like what kind of things do you do to keep yourself sharp and, and keep that awareness at a high level? You know, for me, as soon as I quit drinking, the anxiety issue went away. I've maybe had two or three episodes that I can kind of nip in the butt in the first 10 or 20 seconds over these three years. But as the drinking for me, as soon as I got rid of the drinking, all my problems went away. I'm not a meditator or a yogi or anything like that, but I do every morning. I'm at the gym for about two and a half hours. And if I don't go to the gym, it weighs on me. And it is definitely the way that I let go of all my stress. And for my mental health, the gym is really what it's all about. I listened when I first got sober, I'd go on a walk every night because all of a sudden when you get sober, you have all this time on your hands and you sit with all these thoughts and you don't really, you don't really know what to do because you've been wrapped up in this other life. And so I started walking two, three, four miles a night, listening to YouTube videos on, on becoming sober. And, and that's how, kind of how I did it. I never went to any meetings. My mom just celebrated her 22 years. I went to her birthday deal at AA and watched her get her chip and, and do that kind of stuff. And she still goes to meetings. But for me, luckily I was able to do it by myself. Like I said, I can either, I'm either all in or I'm all out and there's not really a, a middle ground there for me. And then what really helped me is I started sharing my story on social media and, and as authentic as I am, people started reaching out and saying, Hey man, I need some help. And right about now I've got about 35 people from one or two weeks sober to about a year and a half sober. And I, I connect and I talk with these people every day. And, and when I hear their stories and they tell me their, their tough things that they're going through, those are the kind of reminders that I get every single day of why I, I can't go back to that lifestyle. And isn't that a wonderful feeling to be able to help those people who are they've been in your shoes, you've been in their shoes, you can kind of compare notes and you can just, it seems to me like, because my, my story is kind of similar to yours with alcohol in the sense that my dad went through the AA program, the 30 or 60 days or whatever it was. But when I quit, I didn't do a program. I've been sober now for, I'll be 12 years in October, but it's, it's wild how I never knew how good it could feel to help people deal with the stuff that challenges them the most. Now, I, I do probably the things that you're doing with people with alcohol, I do a lot with people that have bipolar disorder. And okay. if I would have told you in 2013, after you won Disney, and now you're a full-fledged PGA Tour champion, that you would be sober and working with other people who are having trouble with booze? Well, I mean, what do you think you would have thought of? Or what do you, what you would have I said? Have I, would, I would have <laughs> laughed at you and said, yeah, right, as I took another drink. Uh, it's just been so remarkable. And then now I've just been helping so many junior golfers and other golfers trying to get better. As a matter of this morning, I played with three mini tour guys that are getting ready to go to Q school. And they all kind of reached out to me separately and said, Hey man, can you kind of help us? And here's what we got going on. So I rounded them all up together. We played golf this morning. I, I, I played two days a week with my old high school team. And I would say probably in about the last four or five months, I've really understood what the saying is, is that you get more out of giving than you do receiving. Because, you know, growing up and being a golfer and then being on tour, you have to be so selfish with your time because yes. otherwise everybody will, will take it. And mm -hmm. 
you have to be so selfish and it's hard. So I was always the gimme, gimme, gimme guy. And now to give back, you know, to these kids. And when I leave the high school practice and I go do this and it's 115 degrees outside and I'm hot and I'm miserable, but to see these kids, you know, smile when I show up or this morning to help these three guys and just the thank yous that they give me after and the look in their eyes of, of man, you really just took your time and helped me. And that's all it costs me. It just costs me my time. And time is the most valuable thing we have, in my opinion. But there is no other way I would rather spend it than helping these people. Because along the way, I had so many people that helped me. And I mean, my mom begged me for a decade to quit drinking, you know, and I just kept blowing her off and blowing her off and saying, look, I just keep it. I keep excelling in life and doing better and doing better. And then finally, it, it came to a, a crashing halt. But boy, giving, giving is so powerful. And I feel like the more you give, the greater you feel and the more that you get back, man, it's, it's truly remarkable. Well, and I don't think it should be overlooked. You know, you talked about these guys that are coming to you as a mentor situation with alcohol and then with golf, but then you've got a son of your own. And I think that, you know, if you were still going at the level you were going back in your thirties or your, your late twenties and early thirties, like you definitely wouldn't be as good a father as you are now to be my guess. That's a hundred percent, you know, about a year after I quit, um, because I had an open door policy at my house. I had people here six, seven nights a week. And I was to the point, man, I, I'm divorced. So I got my son half the time. We have uh, great relationships between the two families. I was at the point where I was, I was scheduling getting my son around football games so I could get even more smashed and not have to have any responsibility taking care of him. And now, man, when I'm with him, I'm 100% present from the time I get him to the time he goes to the bed and uh, I get to pick him up and take him to school every day. And the most powerful thing was about a year after I quit drinking and, and we're sitting and we're watching a football game and he goes, dad, it's so nice that you don't yell at the TV anymore. And that right there was when I was like, you know what? At the time, you know, he was probably, this was three years ago. So he was about seven. And I'm like, here's a seven-year-old that notices and that these kids, they see everything. You might not think that they do, or you might try to hide it and think that you're getting away with it. But these kids, they see and hear everything. And when he said that to me, I was like, I have made the right decision and I'm going to stick through this because right now that's the most important thing to me is being a great dad and being there for him. And it's been awesome. Well, I'm glad you expounded on that part of it because my hope is that there maybe there's a father out there who listens to this podcast who may be drinking too much or maybe taking too many pills or whatever. And this may be, uh, this could be a way for him to realize, hey, I got to be better, not just for me, but for my kid. And, you know, that's really important. Well, Charlie, I have to ask you this. It's well documented. You got big time game. You're, you're a past champion on the PGA Tour. Are you, are you getting the itch to go back and compete? It's funny that you asked that because of about about three weeks ago, you know, I, I felt so great with everything I was doing, but I still just felt this emptiness inside. I felt like I had so much more to offer and I felt like if I could get back on the tour and and be my authentic self, boy, I could really reach out and really meet so many other people and help so many others. So I played the Arizona Open about two weeks ago. And about a week leading up to it, I started to prepare for it. And I just enjoyed the process. And I was out there and no anxiety and I was feeling good. And so I came home to my wife and I said, you know what? I said, I did this as an alcoholic and I, I played with the best in the world. I said, 
I owe it to myself and I owe it to my son. So I sent in about a week ago, I sent in my entry for Q school, man. And I said, you know, awesome. I'm, I'm going to go give it another try. So I'm going to go to second stage in Valencia, California and give this thing another crack. And, you know, not for the golf and not really, obviously it's, it's for me and to get back out there and see what I could do. But I feel like if my son could see me work my butt off and achieve something great like that, what a cool experience. And then to take him out there would be amazing. But to be able to have that platform on the tour or the Corn Ferry Tour, wherever I go, but to have a bigger platform and share my story and touch and help others, that's really what I'm striving for and what my big goal is. Well, and you know what? That is awesome because... I think you get out there and you start playing some events and, and maybe there'll be some speaking opportunities for you at some of the tournaments or opportunities to be around junior golfers. I mean, forgive my ignorance here, but you, you are a past champion. Does that give you access to the corn fair? Does that give you an access to events on the PGA Tour? Like, I don't know how it is. The criteria seems to change like week by week. No question. It's it's. I feel like the PGA Tour is kind of uh, lost right now and trying to find their way. But I get to play what we call the island tour, you know, the Puerto Rico, the Bermuda, the okay. Punta Cana. So I still get into those. I get exempt into second. I've only ever played two Corn Ferry Tour events. I went from the, the mini tours, the barbecue tour to the big tour, skip the Corn Ferry Tour. So I never got any status or anything like that. So no, I mean, I pretty much got And now I've kind of fallen far enough down that past champions category list that I've got to, if I want to get back out there and, and do it, I've got to go and, and go through Q school and, and see where that takes me. No, I totally get it. And I think when, when you're talking about competing and, you know, you said something earlier in this podcast that got my attention. You said that at, at your lowest point, you may play three or four holes and then you were thinking about a drink, right? And that means that you weren't thinking about competing. And now yes. it sounds like you're in a much better place mentally. You're probably in a much better place physically. So this is an opportunity now for you to really enjoy the competition for what it is to test yourself and see how well you can do. That is exactly right. I never once thought about the competition when I was out there, man. It was either trying to beat the anxiety or looking forward to the next drink or looking forward to the night out. It was the golf, just actually the golf, the golf got in the way, man. The golf got right. in the way of everything I was trying to do. And when the golf is actually what gave me the opportunity to do all those other things, my, my outlook in that was just so backwards. And to be able to get out there now, my game has never been better. My mind has never been better. I'm 70 pounds lighter. I just feel that now is now is the time to go give it one more crack. You know, it was super exciting to watch Lucas Glover do his thing. And as a matter of fact, and I think it was like 2014 or 15, I was playing with him. He's five under on, we're on hole number 12 or 13 at Pebble Beach, and he hits it to five feet, and he six putts, man. And that that's when I, him and I really connected because he had the anxiety, and you know he's had the putter yips for 10 years. Right. So watch him do it really gave me that push to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not going to go be Lucas Glover, but let's go see what we can do and how good we can be because, like I said, now that I'm, I'm, I want to compete and I want to see how good I can do instead and not have the booze. And, and I'm really excited about where this might take me. No, it makes sense to me, especially when you see a guy like Lucas, who's around your age, you see him kind of 
reinvent himself and he found something that he could use to putt with. And in your mind, you got to be thinking, you know, I played against this guy. I beat this guy. He's doing this. I'm now in much better shape. Why can't I go do that? A hundred percent. You know, at the beginning of the season, I was playing in a, a couple pro-am deals with Wyndham Clark. And then I watch it and I'm sitting there and I'm not taking anything away from Wyndham Clark at all. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, I would play this guy for a lot of money any mm-hmm. day of the week. And then I watch him win the U.S. Open. And that kind of got my brain ticking and then starting to watch Lucas. And like I said, my game is just so phenomenal right now that Good. I, I have to. I have to go give it a shot. No, man, I love hearing it. I love to hear the fire in your yeah. voice because I, my guess would be that you're going to be a better competitor now than you were before because your focus is going to be ratcheted up way higher than it was when you were drinking and, and taking pills and just you know partying all the time. No question, and that's what I'm most excited for. I haven't been this excited to go play golf and, and probably since before I got my tour card. And I went to Ping this last week. I got fitted for some stuff, and they gave me a new golf bag. And I'm literally laying in bed and I'm like, I can't wait until the morning when I can switch out my golf bag. That's like, awesome. That's how, that is that's awesome. how cool it is. And I'm like, man, it had to be back to like college yeah. when we'd get our new bag every year and be like, yeah. all right, I get to switch out my stuff. And I'm like, that's how I knew it was time. Like the little things are getting me excited or, you know, getting some new wedges and couldn't wait to go hit them. And it was just like, gosh, it's been 10 years since I felt this way. And that's what you need is that excitement. You can't go out to the tour if you're not all in because there's 150 other guys that are all in and that it matters for them completely. And if you're out there just moping around, you don't have a chance. But now to go out there excited to compete, try to beat these guys, to be honest, I really have never played the tour with that mindset because when I got to the tour, I already started partying even bigger because I, I, I completed a lifelong goal. I got to the PGA Tour. Sure. And it was really one just big party scene for me. And I just tried to play well each year well enough to keep my job for the following year instead of trying to see how good I could be. So I've never been this excited in a long, long time. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I would call what you're experiencing is childlike enthusiasm. And if you have that, and I don't care what sport you play, if you have that childlike enthusiasm, I know know exactly what you mean. Like you got some new clubs or you got a new bag, or even sometimes when you get like new head covers, like shit like that, like, you know, that, that kind of thing, thing. when you're excited to go play whatever sport you play, that's what it's all about. Because I I know how golf can be, man. And I'm sure you experienced it many times in that stretch when you were kind of down in the sense that it can be a grind, man. It can be exhausting and it can be tough. Tiresome, and to have the childlike enthusiasm, I'm excited for you. Yeah, well, listen, man, um, let me thank you for a couple things. Number one, I want to thank you for your time. But more importantly, I want to thank you for sharing so openly the details of what you went through and how you grew into the man you are now. And I can promise you one thing, brother, I will be rooting for you at Q School and I will be rooting for you anytime that you tee it up in competition. And we thank you so much for coming on with us today and uh, good luck to you and your family moving forward. Well, I appreciate it. And to all your listeners out there, if you're struggling with the addiction and you're struggling with with the alcohol or whatever it may be, and you don't know how you're going to get to the other side, you've got to take that first step. And I'm going to tell you, it was scary for me to take the first step. Take the leap. You'll never regret it. Out of all the people that I've helped and out of all the people that have become sober that I've met, not one of them says that life is better as an addict, as an alcoholic, or whatever your problem is. It's a tough path, but it's so much more rewarding than you could ever imagine. So take that first step. 
it'll change your life forever. Awesome. Charlie, really appreciate you and everything you're doing to help other people. And I know that people are going to hear this and you're going to help some people. You're going to wake up some people. And, and that's the whole point of this podcast. And, you know, we'll, a little bit down the road, we'll have you back on and see how things are going and where you are. Cool. And I thank you guys so much for your time and thank you for what you're doing and spreading the word because mental health, everybody's struggling with it in one form or the other. And, you know, it's some podcasts like this that might just turn somebody's life around. Amen, brother. Will you take care of yourself? If you talk to Ricky Romano, send him my best. I haven't talked to him in quite a while, but we will be in touch with you. Thanks again and come back and see us next time on Street Smart. All right. Yes, sir. Have a great day, gentlemen.